take care while listening to this podcast. It discusses criminal activity, including violence, abduction, and murder, sometimes involving children. Also, any opinions in these episodes are solely the opinions of the creators telling the story. Suspects mentioned in these tales are considered innocent unless proven guilty in a court of law. And these are real stories about real people. The most important thing we can do to honor the victims and their loved ones is to play an active role in our criminal justice system, remain vigilant in understanding our surroundings, and support organizations that work to make sure that stories like these remain the exception and not the rule. In The Offshore Pirate, F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote, All life is just a progression toward, and then a recession from, one phrase, I love you. That sentiment captures the ebb and flow of the heart, with love being the center. The journey toward it and then away from it can feel like a roller coaster, or the slow movement of the tides on a beach. It might also explain why Valentine's Day is a quote holiday that is both equally loved and reviled, both anticipated and dreaded depending on where you are in your life. Artists have grappled with this notion since the first human felt the inspiration to paint on a cave wall to dance, or sing out in the night sky. Love both gained and lost has been the inspiration for most art, both the written word, the painted portrait, and the harmony of the soul. There is perhaps no place where the existence of love is more fervently expressed than through music, and, in recent years, no star has more consistently examined love in both its beautiful and beastly forms more completely than Taylor Swift. If, a year ago, you would have told me that I would not only like her music, but consider myself a Swifty, I would have called you crazy to your face. But, that's where we are. What a difference a year makes. So why, might you ask, is Taylor Swift being mentioned in a true crime podcast collaboration? Well, she's the inspiration for the stories we're telling in this miniseries. Each case was chosen based on the title of a Taylor Swift song. So, let's dive into this episode of the Taylor Swift-inspired true crime collaboration. Welcome to Extinguished, where David McClam and LaDonna Humphrey share stories of the missing and murdered. Missing. Murdered. Their lives were extinguished. Hey, everybody, I'm David McClam. And I'm LaDonna Humphrey. Welcome to Extinguished. Hey, LaDonna, this is our very first episode. How are you feeling about that? I am incredibly excited, and I cannot wait to share these stories with our listeners. Well, I have been waiting for this for a long time, as well as you. 
I'm looking forward to all the incredible stories that we're going to bring to the audience with this new podcast. Me too. So let's just dive right on in. You ready? Ready to go. All right. This is the first episode in a four-part series about the Superbike Motorsports murders in Chesney, South Carolina that occurred on November 6th of 2003. A customer walked into that business to find four people who had been shot dead inside that motorcycle shop. The victims were Scott Ponder, the owner, Brian Lucas, the service manager, Chris Sherbert, the mechanic, and Beverly Guy, the bookkeeper, who was also Scott Ponder's mother. Let's get into what happened there. So on the morning of November 6, 2003, as LaDonna says, someone walked into a motorcycle dealership called Superbike Motorsports in the small town of Chesney, South Carolina, and shot the owner, his mother, and two employees in the head. The crime became known as the Superbike Murders, and it seemed as senseless as it was cold-blooded. Nothing was taken, an envelope of cash was left lying right in plain sight, and the shop had been a success, even winning an award from Suzuki that year. Left dead were founder and owner Scott Ponder, 30, his mother Beverly Guy, 52, shop mechanic Chris Sherbert, 26, and Ponder's close friend and service manager, Brian Lucas, 30. Police searched for leads in pursuit of a variety of theories, one of which compounded the tragedy of the crime by erroneously casting suspicion on Scott Ponder's widow, but eventually all the leads led to dead ends. I'm sure LaDonna, that had to be hard for her if they're gonna cast suspicion on her as the widow just after this happens. What's your thought on that? I think it had to have been incredibly heartbreaking. Not only have you lost your husband and your mother-in-law and some close friends, your entire life is destroyed. And then all of a sudden you've got fingers pointed at you. I think that that's probably one of the most devastating things that a human could go through. I totally agree. I totally agree. I can't imagine what she was going through at that time, especially, you know, like you said, her whole life is now upended, you know, the, not anticipating her husband and especially his mom and all the friends not coming home that day. Totally devastating. Well, and then just losing, you know, community standing on top of that, you know, you, you have this great reputation and you need people to continue to kind of rally around you like you have been accustomed to. And all of a sudden you lose that because there's this, you know, dark cloud over you. Like, could you be involved in these murders? I can't even imagine. I think the entire situation is incredibly sad and heartbreaking. I totally agree 100%. I can't imagine what it was like for her. I can't imagine going through that year after year after year and not having any new leads. Right. That's the part that I, f I think is difficult. And to know that this went on for 13 years. It was 13 years of all of these questions before really something kind of strange happened and it brought new evidence into the police for them to take a look at. It was kind of a bizarre series of events. Right. And then, you know, just so the audience can kind of picture this, you got to think about what the police and investigators is going through, because from all the things I've read, you know, the one investigator had two file cabinets full, each drawer completely full. That's 10 drawers each of stuff for just this case evidence and interviews and things of that nature so imagine that i can't and i think that 
the listeners are going to find this case pretty interesting to know that it was really kind of all over the place. Exactly. Okay, well, we're going to look at the wife. Well, we're going to look at this. Well, we're, we're not really going to be able to do much of anything because the case stalled for so long until there was this series of actually four people that went missing and there were some Facebook posts and eventually an arrest uh, of a man that ended up being a serial killer. And I am sort of talking about this vaguely since we're going to dive into this a little bit deeper in other episodes, but just trying to set the stage for the listeners so they can kind of understand what a roller coaster this particular case was. It certainly was. So you guys have to make sure to tune in to all four parts of this, because if you miss one, you miss a ton of stuff. All right, so moving on, as LaDonna mentioned, it took 13 years. At that point, a bizarre series of events involving four missing persons, Facebook posts, and a serial killer would lead to the arrest of a man on murder and false imprisonment charges. And after a few lengthy interrogations, the accused revealed he was a serial killer and confessed to the previous crimes. One of those crimes had taken place at a motorcycle dealership. So let's go back to January of 2001, when Scott Ponder, a passionate motorcycle enthusiast, opened a motorcycle and power sports dealership called Superbike Motorsports in his native South Carolina. Scott's best friend, Brian, who shared his enthusiasm for all things two-wheeled, joined Scott at SBKMS as the shop's service manager. Scott's mom liked to spend time at the dealership, running errands for them, and just generally enjoying the time with her son. And Chris was the shop's most recent hire and had only been on board for a short amount of time. The dealership was a success. Scott used the internet in innovative ways to sell motorcycles in the early 2000s. And SBKMS saw more than $1 million in sales in the first year. Building on that success, Scott invested further in the business, remodeling and expanding their garage. Let's talk about that for a minute there, LaDonna. So, you know, Chesney is a very small town and to have this amount of success just from a dream that Scott has had to be tremendous for them. So it seems like the American dream. You know, they have their family, their close friends involved. They have this dream business and then it just sort of skyrockets with with success and I think that that was probably, you know, overwhelming. And I'm wondering too, if that made people, you know, envious of him, if he had any problems because of that. And if those were leads that maybe police had to look into, because like you said, it was a small town and they had a huge amount of success in a short amount of time. Right. And to bring in that kind of money, I mean, I'm from a small Southern town in Georgia and to bring in that kind of money in one business is unheard of, especially just starting out. It really is. And it was really just amazing. And kind of like what we touched on before, they had everything going for them. And that's what I think makes this crime even more horrific. But I think it gets even worse when you start looking at Scott and his family. You know, he'd married Melissa. They were newly married. And when this crime took place, David, she was pregnant with their first child a child that Scott never got to meet. And that really kind of adds insult to injury in this case, I think, knowing that there was an unborn child involved. Yeah, that's horrible. And I hope I'm not giving too much away, but if I remember the story correctly, they were having problems conceiving even. So, you know, this was a miracle for them for her to be pregnant with this child. 
and it was just something they were all very excited about and celebrating and then it was just taken from them so quickly on that morning of November 6th you know someone walked into that motorcycle dealership and they just shot the owner they shot his mother they shot employees they killed everybody in their path not thinking about the loved ones that were going to be left behind and that there was this unborn child and that there was this tight-knit community that was going to be so impacted by this crime I just get so upset when I think about how horrible that must have been for that small town yeah the people had to be scared especially when things like this doesn't take place there they don't even know who it is and I'm sure they're thinking it's somebody that came from the outside coming in to cause some problems exactly and I think you know we talked about this a little bit too you know the police are pursuing all of these leads there are theories that come up immediately as would in any crime as would in any small town right you've got like like i said before the small very successful business and so there's going to be talk you know why was he so successful what kind of enemies did he have so there were a lot of theories that kind of cropped up but i think one of the theories that really kind of surfaced that the police looked at pretty seriously um, was really detrimental to the family, to the town, and to the case. That's when police really started focusing in on Scott Ponder's widow. They felt like they needed to look at her every angle almost. You know, they really kind of turned her life upside down and I don't know, that just makes me take pause because David, that can happen to anybody. And I, I'm not saying that they did the wrong thing because I think that you should always look at the family because we know statistically, you know, when a, when a murder is committed, it's almost always a family member or someone close to the situation. But I just, I can't get past all of the horrible things that were thrown at this family and this community at once. Well, the way I looked at it was like the police was grasping at straws, right? Because they hadn't had any leads. They were trying to find them, you know, and then Scott's widow comes up. But I mean, they're accusing her basically of having an affair. The kid's not being Scott's. I mean, that to me is just so insensitive being of what she's going through. Like what would possess you to think that this is what this woman would do? And I mean, she's having every reaction that someone who just lost her husband and friends should be having. You know, I don't really know how to explain it. I think probably retrospect police may regret some of the decisions that they made, but they did look at Melissa, which was Scott's widow, very, very closely. And, you know, they started by calling her into the station over and over, which had to have been really difficult for her because she's grieving her husband. But then after that, they wanted to start seeing Scott Jr., or Scotty is what they called him, after he was born. And so during one of those visits to the police station, Melissa, and this this is really frustrating for me, but Melissa changes her baby's diaper. And you know what police do? They take that diaper and they send it off to a lab for a test. They want to test for DNA. And they don't tell Melissa that they're doing this. And I'm not really sure what the motivation was in doing that. I think it goes back to something you said, grasping at straws, because they needed to 
find out who committed these horrific murders. So this is where this case gets even stranger. The DNA samples come back from the lab and police call Melissa in and they say, Melissa, Scott is not the father of your baby. Brian is the father of the baby. Brian, who's the best friend. They, you know, they're confronting Melissa with this information. She flatly denies that it's even a possibility. She tells them there is no way anybody other than Scott could be the father of this baby. And she requests that a, a test be done a second time. And I cannot believe how horrible that must have been for her to have to defend who the father of her child was. She had already lost her husband and, and so many other things. So this just adds insult to injury. And I think what we should fill the audience in on is how this mess even got started it was because Scott had an ex-wife that I'm going to assume was jealous of whatever the case was. Uh, and she alerted investigators that there was no way that this could be Scott's kid because he couldn't have children or things of that nature. But she had been, Melissa had been on in vitro, which is how they got this kid in the first place. So it's devastating to have to go through all of that plus all of this horror and tragedy at the same time. It's awful. So they send the test off again because Melissa demanded a second test and the results come in from the second test and it yields the same results. Scott is not the father and Melissa is absolutely devastated. And at this point she decided, I, I'm not gonna speak to police anymore. I can't do that without a lawyer there are too many things being thrown at me and she knew what the truth was, but she did not know how to fight against this DNA evidence. And once she hired that attorney to, you know, assist her through this process, well, that just sent up red flags to police and that just made them even more suspicious of Melissa. And it just kind of went downhill between Melissa and police at that point. I think it was even to the point of, didn't Scotty pretty much get disowned, you know, by the great grandmother because of this rumor that was going around that wasn't true? Yes. I mean, this impacted the entire town. Can you imagine having that, that rumor spread around about you? I mean, I guess I'm not one to really care about rumors, but when your husband's murdered and you're being looked at as a suspect, and now they're saying, hey, he's not really the father of your child, it would be kind of hard to not really buy into the rumors and feel impacted by what people were saying and doing. Right, and Melissa was so hell-bent on making sure everybody knew the truth, she had to threaten to have Scott's body exhumed before they actually got to the truth and found out exactly how come Brian's DNA was showing up on these tests. Well, and that took, what, 18 months, David? I mean, I think 18 months passed while this cloud of suspicion sort of followed her around. So she has an almost, you know, she's got a toddler at that point. Little Scotty Jr. is, you know, learning to walk and talk without having the benefit of having his father around and they're still trying to figure out you know a who murdered his daddy and b 
is he really the daddy of the little boy? So just the sheer amount of time that went on is pretty awful and really sad. I, I don't know. I, I'm feeling sort of riled up about this because there's just really no excuse for that to let something drag on for 18 months. I really hate that for the family. Right. And the thing is, even though that we do know that over time the cops came back and they apologized, but the damage has already been done. You've accused her of doing something so ungodly, you know, that the person that she was really close to being Scotty's, the son's great grandmother now goes to her grave, not even knowing the truth and thinking bad things about Melissa. So now she has to live with this until she's gone. I had forgotten that part of the story. And so that makes me really sad to think that family members passed away not knowing the truth. You can't fix that. And that is why it's so important that you get all the information that you can right up front and you work those leads as quickly as possible and you don't let things drag on that long. I totally agree. So guys, look, this is what we're going to do. Uh, you heard it from us. We're going to let you hear directly from Melissa herself. LaDonna had the opportunity to interview her, and we're going to play that segment for you right now. I really just want to talk about the events of the morning of November 6, 2003. Just tell me what you remember vividly before you heard the news. Um, talk to me about that last time that you saw Scott. Okay. I was experiencing pretty heavy morning sickness at that time, and it was just, you know, it, it wasn't fun. <laughs> I uh, usually woke up before him and headed to work, but that particular morning, I just wasn't feeling that great. And so he actually got up before me, headed to work. Then I got up and started getting ready, eating my saltines and drinking my water. And I passed him that morning. I passed the motorcycle dealership on the way to work. And my last vision of Scott alive is he, I honked at him, he blew a kiss and he waved at me as I drove by. And that's um, the last time I actually saw him alive. I went to work that day and just kind of had a normal day. I wasn't planning on staying very long due to my morning sickness. I was going to come back that afternoon and maybe hang out at the dealership or just go home and take a nap. But we had a conversation about two o'clock. That afternoon, he was going to be sponsoring a Wofford College football game. He was going to give away a go-kart at halftime. And so we were discussing the things that would be said over the intercom at the football game. And that was kind of our conversation. It was just a very normal goodbye. I love you. See you later. You know, and I, and, and I, I told him I'll probably head that way in the next hour or so. And that was the last time I actually talked to him. So where were you when you learned what had happened? I had, I was on my way out to the dealership actually, but had gotten a work call that one of my clients needed some material. I worked for the Chamber of Commerce at the time. And so I took a detour and went the direction of the business instead. And while I was driving to that business, I received a phone call from one of his clients who actually handled all of his credit card machines. And she said that um, she was trying to get to the dealership and that there was road blocked at a Y in the road and that nobody could get through and that there were like 10 cops sitting at the, at the Y in the road and that she had heard that there might've been a shooting at the dealership. Oh, wow. and, she, and she felt like that I needed to get up there. And so that's 
how I initially found out that something had happened. So you were there then while everything was blocked off and police were on the scene. And, and so police, did they actually have to come out and talk to you and, and let you know if you've been killed? Oh, oh yeah. Well, I pulled up to the, to the block. I, I had a news camera van literally pushing me up the road. I think I was going 80, 85 miles an hour up Paris Bridge Road and there was somebody pushing me and I couldn't, you know, I, I tried to call the dealership. I tried to call Scott's phone. I tried to call the dealership. I kept going back and forth and just getting voicemail and it seemed like his phone had been turned off and leaving frantic messages at the business phone. Um, I called my mom in Arizona and said, I have no idea what's going on. I can't get a hold of him. I pulled up to that blockade and there, it was just a sea of law enforcement. There were helicopters flying up above. I got out of my car, I pulled it over, got out and then ran past them and said, I have to get down there, that's my husband's business. And they came running after me and stopped me for good reason. Um, I didn't know, honestly, if I, I was never going to make it past them, but had I, I would have seen, you know, a horrific crime scene. And so I'm grateful I didn't. They stopped me and said, no, you can't go down there. And I, I said, I'm the wife of the owner and I just need, I need to know what's going on. Um, they did not give me a ton of information right away. They were instead instructed to drive me home and keep me there and not to turn on the TV and not to turn on the radio. And they had my phone. It's, it was evident they didn't want me to have information from anybody until they were ready to give it to me. That's not a moment anybody can prepare for, is it? No, and I had a good two, out, two to two and a half hours of sitting there waiting for information. And so, as you can imagine, my, you know, my brain went into overdrive and I thought, um, you know, somebody might've come in and tried to rob the place. And so Scott maybe had shot them and that we were gonna be dealing with that, but not, not what actually happened. It was a couple of hours you said before you actually knew? Yes. It was about two hours. It was already all over the news. Everybody, I feel like everybody else already knew what was going on and I did not. Okay, that's hard, that's difficult. It, it's hard for me to think that pretty much everybody knew that he was dead before I did. Yeah, I think the anxiety and the what if would be hanging over your head. It's kind of like what you talked about, like playing out scenarios that you think could have happened and not knowing. Right, right. That is all I had at the time, just waiting. Yeah, tell me about that moment when you found out that he had been killed. By the time the coroner came to my home, I probably had 30 people in my house. I had law enforcement officers. I had my bishop from church. I had friends. I had my next door neighbor. There was just a lot of people in my home and I didn't really understand what was going on. I was staring out the front glass door. We had a glass door in front of our, our wooden door and that was open and I was just staring out the front door and I saw a Spartanburg County coroner come through and drive up up the wind, um, up my driveway. And even at that point, it didn't hit me that the coroner is coming to my home. And I think because my body probably went into protection mode at the time, not knowing why right. or, but they came in, they asked me to sit down and then they delivered the news. They told me that 
an unfortunate event had occurred down at Scott's business that day and that he had been shot and killed. Um, I remember thinking, no, that's not what happened. I thought Scott shot somebody because they tried to rob him. And I even expressed that to them. And they said, no, I, where did you get that from? And I said, honestly, because somebody had told me there, you know, had been somebody with a gun and there had been a shooting and I had nothing else to go on. And so, you know, they, they explained. I, I then at the time asked for Scott's mom. I wanted to talk to her. I needed to know how she was, where she was, and how, you know, how she was doing. And that's when they told me that she had also been killed and that Brian Lucas had been killed. And the fourth victim, they were still trying to identify because he didn't have any of his identification on him. But in my heart, I knew it was Chris Sherbert. I mean, I, I felt like it had to be. I can't even imagine that moment for you. Yeah, it was, it, it was terrible. It, it was... It was shocking. I mean, again, my body was pretty numb, but I feel like more than anything, my body was just trying to protect the unborn baby. So, so many things happening emotionally, right. physiologically. I mean, right. Wow. And then, then the case, the case was just so high profile. Right. Um, that couldn't have been easy. It's just not something that, you know, growing up in my small town, I ever would have imagined for my life. Never. It's just, you know, you watch these kind of things on TV and it is, it's interesting that I, I see myself, you know, on TV explaining this story or talking about it to somebody. And it's just not something I could have ever imagined. And yes, it was very high profile because they didn't, first off, it was an unsolved quadruple homicide and that just didn't happen around there. That's not something that occurred. Sure, there was a murder here and there or a robbery or, you know, an accident, but an unsolved quadruple homicide was just not something that happened in that area. Yeah, that that kind of complicates, the, I think, the issue with, uh, you know, trying to cope with the grief and right. just the overwhelming pressure of the case. Right. Then on top of all of that, there were some just really crazy twists and turns for you in that case. <laughs> I mean, talk to me about the DNA mix-up about your son's paternity. You know, that still to this day just baffles me how that happened. Although I know people make mistakes and I'm and I'm can accept that and I'm I'm okay with it. But I will tell you that that day was I feel like it sent me right back into mourning. Um, I was called into the sheriff's department and they wanted to talk to me about something very serious, but they wanted me to leave my baby at home. He was six months old at the time. So in my mind, I'm heading there with a ton of anxiety, thinking they know who did it. They're going to tell me who did it. And then, you know, how this is going to play out. So that's truly what I thought I was going in there for. And it was so opposite. Um, I. I got there they sent me in a room told me that they had taken the DNA from a diaper that I had left there two weeks prior and ran a DNA test with my late husband's DNA and that it did not match up so they wanted to know who was the actual father of my child and why I hadn't been more forthcoming about the paternity of Scotty what did you do? I mean, how do you respond to that? I, I was baffled. I was speechless. 
for, to a point. I was speechless for a little bit. Then I became just irate. And I said, what are you guys trying to do here? I told them I'm going to go back to grab my baby. I'm going to bring him here to the sheriff's office. I'm going to watch you swab his mouth, watch you seal that swab, put it in the envelope and mail it. Because I, I mean, there's just no way. And so I brought Scotty back to their offices. I watched them do this in front of me. And the crazy thing is, is had they just asked me for his DNA, I would have given it to him. There's nothing I ever had to hide, nothing. I felt like I was as open with them as I could have possibly been. And <laughs> this is what I got for it. <laughs> Why do you think that they were so secretive about it? They had nothing else to go on. And Scott's ex-wife had called in, letting them know that Scott wasn't able to have children, that he was on, you know, Accutane as a teenager, it made him sterile, and all that is a bunch of BS. But that was the, their lead in order to follow me and to see, you know, if something had been going on. And that's why they actually did a DNA test. And, and they let me know that later once everything was cleared up. And, and she even apologized to, you know, to me for starting all that. Right. <laughs> but um, I, that's, that's how they started it. That's where it came from. And, and so that, de that second DNA test that they did also came back as Scott not being the father of Scotty. So what? at that point, at that point, I was, I was scared to death. In fact, I thought that maybe through the IVF process, maybe I got the wrong sperm. Like I didn't know. I there were so many things going through my mind at the time that I just thought, I don't care whose baby this is. This is my baby, <laughs> and that doesn't change anything. And so I, I told them at that point when they told me they now had two DNA tests that didn't match, that I was going to my attorney's office and having a court order to have Scott's body exhumed, because that was the point I was at. I was already so devastated by the fact that he had been murdered and then to have somebody accuse me of having an affair and telling me that I was involved in trying to cover up this affair, which that was their angle, um, that I, I was headed to my attorney's office. And before I got there and before I got the court order, one of the detectives called me and said, don't, don't do that. Don't have his body exhumed. Something is not adding up here. I, I actually believe you. I, I don't know what's happening here, but something, you know, something's amiss. <laughs> and so in order to clear this up, they decided to run a DNA test between Scott and his mother. And those two DNA tests did not match up. And so Brian's body and Scott's body were next to each other at the crime scene. And what ended up ultimately happening is Brian's DNA was labeled um, with Scott. So oh, wow. what had happened, they were comparing my baby to Brian Lucas's DNA. And how, how long did it take to get that sorted out? I would say two months, probably, before I actually heard back from them. But and it, it's funny because they said, you know, if we've, we've made a mistake, we, you know, we'll man up and we'll apologize. And the problem with all of that happening is there are some pretty crucial things that happened during that time. And one of them, first off, the rumors ran rampant around that area that I had had an affair, 
that Scott was not Scotty's dad. I, you know, that's even though it's it's not a small, tiny town, but it has that feel. <laughs> and so, um, Scott's grandmother, who is Scotty's great grandmother, she died in the middle of that DNA mix-up from pancreatic cancer and had been told by the sheriff's office that this great grandchild of hers was not actually her blood. And so she took all of the family property and left it to a sister that she had not talked to for 15 years um, and, and made sure that I was sent a copy of the will that said, you know, my son was not entitled to anything. And, you know, for me, it's never, ever, ever been about any type of money or assets or property or, it was more that this woman who I had been very close to died thinking that this wasn't even her, her own blood. And that was just another punch in the gut for me. That was hard. It was really hard to accept. I was treated like a stranger at her funeral, an outcast. Um, and again, she was somebody that I had been very close to and so, the result, you know, of this mixed up DNA was me, again, being, I, I was an outsider. My son was treated as an outsider. It just, it was really hurtful. It caused a lot of emotional damage. I can't even imagine how you even start to pick yourself up from that series of events. I mean, you're incredibly strong. Well, and you know, in writing about this and keeping track of just the things and the events that occurred, I kept a very extensive journal and reading back through that, it it was devastating to just even to, re to read about. It was hard. I mean, I shed a lot of tears just rereading all of those things that happened. And you know, you lose your spouse and then to have somebody accuse you of doing something that's pretty dang heinous and then, you know, have somebody important to you die, not even thinking that it, it just, there was a chain of events that occurred because of that mistake. That was hard. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's life changing all over again. It, it was, it was. And so you're dealing with all that. And then, you know, time goes by this long period of time. You know, there's, there's so many unanswered mm -hmm. questions. I mean, how did you find it difficult not to continually be on edge? Um, you know, coping with not having those answers. I mean, were you just always looking over your shoulder? Well, after they mixed up the DNA, I was, I was always kind of scared to hear from them. Like I never knew what they were going to throw at me next. And I never, so I always had that anxiety when my phone would ring or I would get an email because I just, I never knew what they were thinking. They were, gracious enough to go on the news and talk about the mistake they made and and talk about the fact that they did run the proper DNA test and that you know Scott was 99.999 percent you know the father of Scotty right um, and so I was grateful that they had the um you know the wherewithal to do that but just you know events later on in life yes I just I had anxiety in dealing with them and um and a lot of time had passed that I had, you know, finally made peace with, with life. And I, you know, felt like I was accepting of what had happened and had overcome a lot of trials. And <laughs> so, you know, 
But you knew, I mean, you knew the entire time that the, the baby was yours and Scott's. Oh, and, for sure. And you also know that, you know, you're not involved in any kind of plot to kill Scott. Right. So there's a murderer out there. And how did you cope with that and not having answers with that? It, after years of having nothing, well, I had, after the, the DNA mix-up, I actually ended up moving back to Arizona to be near my family and friends. I had sold the franchise back to Suzuki and all of the items inside. I sold my home. I just needed to be back where my large support system existed. And so um, I, you know, over the years, I, yes, I thought a lot about this person. I thought a lot about what this person must be doing or their existence. And, and you know, I don't feel like they were really after me because had they been you know they i was in the public eye i was not hiding um i'd done a lot of media interviews and i you know and just in the hopes that somebody would talk or somebody would say something but yes a lot a lot of the time i i did i thought about this person a lot not really knowing who i was thinking about but just how they continued to exist knowing what they had done Right, and stole so much more right. from you that day. Right. I mean, than anybody oh, right. can even imagine. Well, how did you how did you find out about the missing person missing persons case for Kayla and and Charlie? I was watching. I I watch morning news shows as I get ready for work, and I saw that there was a girl that they had found in the Connex shipping container you know, out in the middle of nowhere. And when they, you know, said where it was, and then I saw, you know, the sheriff's department out there, I thought, oh my gosh, you know, that's that's where our crime was. Not even thinking for a second that had anything to do with us. Not, the, I mean, the MO was so different. And I just, but I was very intrigued by all of it because for one, they found her alive, which I was grateful, but that it was in, you know, the same county where this had all happened to us. So I knew, you know, that they had found her. I did not know it was related for a couple of days. What was that like when you found out it was related? I mean, were you just absolutely astounded? I mean, what was that day like for you? First off, uh, when the sheriff's department did call me, I made sure that I was recording that phone conversation because again, I just never knew what they were gonna throw at me. And so, when they said that they had something very important they needed to talk to me about, well, that's how they had approached me with the DNA as well. And so I um, made sure I had that phone phone call recorded. And when it finally came out, when he said, he said, have you been watching the news coverage of, you know, Kayla Brown, she was found alive. And I said, I have, and I'm, and I'm grateful, but what, you know, what does that have to do with me? And he said, well, we got him. That's honestly wow. how he said it. We got him. And I didn't really know what he was talking about. I'm like, who did we get? And he said, we've, th this same man has admitted to, he has confessed to the quadruple homicide at Superbike as well. And I could not believe it. Oh, I bet. I mean, do you feel, did you feel a sense of relief? More a sense of curiosity at the time because I needed to know who this was. I needed to know things about him. I needed to know why. I needed, you know, I just, it, it more became a, a curiosity thing for me. Yes, I was relieved that finally, after all these years, because it was 13 years to the day, one day before. 
the actual 13 year anniversary. Wow. I didn't realize that. No. Yeah, it was one day before the 13 year anniversary that that news story broke. And so, you know, every year we do something special on that day and it this just happened to be a whole different ball game for us. It was, it was shocking. It was shocking. And then when the reasons came out as to what had happened, it would just, you know, I, I, it, I, it just didn't make sense. It didn't make sense to me. And I mean, you, you mentioned that it had been 13 years, you know, that had passed by during that time period, you know, while you're you know, waiting for answers and, and healing from all these things that have happened. What does your life look like as you try to manage to, and I don't know if move on is the right word, but manage to rebuild your life. I feel like for the first maybe eight years, I was a train wreck. Not in the sense that, you know, I'm not a drinker, I'm not a drug user, I'm not a, for me, it just was, I was careless with, I feel like with my heart, trying to fill that gap, trying to move on. And, you know, three marriages and divorces, one of those produced a son who is now 14 years old. And it used to be something I was so embarrassed to talk about. And now I'm very vocal about it because there is um, a lot of divorce within widowhood. And it's something that I've learned. Um, and that's that's how I tried to rebuild and regroup and get my life back. And it never worked for me. I feel like I jumped into things too fast. And again, it was just trying to fill a hole that I had that really couldn't be filled. And honestly, it wasn't until I was okay with myself I had gone back and got my master's degree. I worked a job that I loved and met my my husband now who I had no intention of getting married again. It was too painful. I felt like I had not been been careful or not been thorough and you know, by the time I remarried, by the time I had healed my heart, healed myself, um, that's when this case broke. And I think that that truly was all in God's timing. I think that he knew <laughs> I needed to get myself straight. I needed to have a clear head on my shoulders because there was going to be an onslaught of media, of of stories, of, you know, just, we were gonna be all over the news again. You're reliving it, yeah. And I, and I did, and honestly, I feel like I finally was able to mourn this in a healthy way. That's, that's important. And that, I think that, you know, will continue to help you on your journey. And, you know, a lot of times victims will talk about, you know, closure when it comes to justice. And, you right. know, do you think that there's um, ever really a complete sense of closure? Do you feel that in this case? No, no. I've talked about this with a lot of people. Closure is to me, when you get to fix everything that was broken that's closure, but you don't get that with this. That would be Scott being alive again, him coming back, him raising our child, him, you know, but that's not possible when somebody's taken. You don't get that kind of closure. You get a sense of, maybe it's a it's a, an acceptance and this is what is, and this is how I need to handle it. And I do feel, you know, once this story broke and once it, I knew why and knew how this happened, I was able to turn 
a chapter that I had not been able to turn before. And that, and it's not necessarily closure, it's acceptance and just peace with what, with what happened. Well, that was, that was going to be one of my questions. Is there a sense of peace? But I, I can just even, I can hear it talking to you, the peace that you have found. And what about justice? Do you feel like now that it's all said and done and Todd has been sentenced and, um, you know, you've got your answers, is that justice? Is that relief? That is, I, I feel like, you know, we all know that our justice system isn't perfect. Um, that's actually what I went back and got my master's degree in, in, in the justice administration. Oh, fantastic. And I, and, and it was because I had been thrown into a world that I had never been a part of before. And it became very easy. That study was just easy for me because that was my life. And so I, I do feel like there's justice here. Yes. He will never get out. He can't appeal this. He can't enjoy the things that the rest of us do. I have, I have forgiven him. I've told him, you know, face to face that I, I forgive him. And that took me knowing a little bit of his backstory and things that had happened to him. And while I don't excuse his behavior or his actions, I truly feel that he himself was a victim um, at some point and you know he turned it on others and and is that the right way to behave no but you know my husband is dead as a result of Todd at one time you know being a victim of you know no love no acceptance no unconditional love no you know and that these are ramifications of that Melissa you're honestly really courageous and, and just Phenomenal. I appreciate your time today. I'm, the strength that uh, that you exhibit from the things that you've endured is just something else. I, I, I really can't believe it. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I think that we all are just kind of given choices. And, you know, I've made some mistakes, but at the end of the day, I want to be able to be proud of what I've done. I want Scott to be proud of me. I want him to feel like, you know, that's why I feel like that's why he married me. I was strong, had a head on my shoulders. And, you know, I think these are things he would expect of me. All right, guys, you heard it from us. Now you heard it from Melissa, including how she felt when she was notified. LaDonna, let me ask you, you were sitting right in front of Melissa, even if it was virtually. You got to see her emotions. Can you tell us what it was like to interview her after all this time? My discussion with Melissa was really emotional for me personally. One, because I'm so sad to, you know, sit down and talk with this woman who's been impacted by the loss of her husband, her mother-in-law, close friends, the loss of an, a community that's then judging you and believing things about you that is a lie. And just to hear the rawness in her voice when she talked about the things that had happened to her and you know, I also felt admiration for her at the same time, David, because she continued to be strong. She continued to fight because she did want justice for her, for what had happened with her husband, but she also wanted that justice for her son. And that was something that she and I talked about quite a bit, even kind of off camera privately, is just that she wanted to continue to move forward, to do everything that she could to bring justice on behalf of that little guy, you know, that she had brought into this world. And so 
I felt very impacted by by that interview and just very honored that I got to to visit with her. You know, just hearing it, you know, I wasn't there to actually see it, but just hearing it got me all up in my feelings. You could hear that she was trying, you know, to laugh and get through it the best way she could. But even if it's 13 plus years later, it's still very real to her. And she's still dealing with that fact, even though Scotty is of age now, still deals with the fact of what would have happened or how it would have been, you know, if Scott was here. She's a very strong woman because I don't know if I could have gotten through the interview the way that she did. She was very poised and uh, she came to answer it. And, you know, the thing I want to point out to the audience, you know, me and you, LaDonna, we do true crime all the time. We talk to a lot of people. But the one thing I think the audience needs to know is every time these people tell these stories of what happens, they relive that. And I've dealt with some people that relive it so deep to where they completely break down. How was she feeling uh, that you could see at the very end of the interview with you? We were both emotional. And I, I will say that I felt a connection with Melissa, which, you know, you don't always have that happen when you're interviewing someone. And so I think we kind of helped each other through some of it because I did have to ask some really hard questions and bring up some really hard emotions. And so that was definitely something that she, she did struggle with. But, you know, at the end, she said she was glad for the time that we had spent together and that, you know, it, it felt good to her to be able to talk about what had happened and, you know, where she was in life now. and how she had gotten through that horrific time. So I think overall it was, um, as you can expect, kind of a roller coaster of, you know, going through one of the most horrific things that any human is ever going to experience. Well, I will tell you, I think you did a fabulous job. Uh, you can tell that, you know, your compassion was there. Uh, you tread really lightly. I don't think it's the part that they heard, but I know you did say, you know, this is gonna get a little rough now you know, kind of going into, we got to get to these hard questions. I'm really sorry, but I, I think it also brings healing to her to get this story out before we shot this episode. I had went back and revisited some old clips I watched of their local news down there. And the one thing the investigator said is that they, even to this day, still want to get this story out and have everybody hear it. So you did a very good job interviewing Melissa. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm hopeful that we can continue to do these kind of interviews, not just on this case, but every case that we cover, David. I think it's so important if we can get that perspective because it's important for us as creators, but it's also really important for people who consume any kind of true crime content. So you understand that there is a real life that's impacted on the other end of the story. And that's why I think these kind of interviews and that type of in-depth discussion is really, really critical. I totally agree. I totally agree. Well, that kind of brings us to the end of this first one, Donna. Do you have anything that you want to say about uh, what we've talked about here today going out? You know, David, I'm really just looking forward to jumping in and covering the rest of this case and bringing this story to the listeners so we can kind of wrap our arms around what happened. It's almost like a cautionary tale, like what not to do in a, an investigation, but also how to show some empathy towards um, families like this, like Melissa, who um, get in these kind of situations where police are looking at them unjustly. I think that's just important that we carry that theme through the rest of these episodes. 
I totally agree. And I'm looking forward to bringing the rest of this case for that reason so that we get it out here. You know, I've already said that we do true crime for the cases that no one knows and the ones that we should never forget. This is truly one that we should never forget. And hopefully we can bring that uh, to the families and they can get some healing from that. So everybody, that does it for episode one. We thank you for tuning in. We're looking forward to you coming back episode two next week. We're going to dive into the investigation. You don't want to miss that. So I hope you come back and join us again. This is the podcast where we talk about the missing and remember the ones that we lost so that their lives won't be extinguished. We'll talk to you guys next week. Don't forget to rate, comment, and subscribe. One link to a link tree has it all. Editing and sound by David McClam. Cover art and logo by Sahail Kanjadun. Theme music, Dying Signals by Nick Owie. Introduction and credits done by Jackie Voice. See you next time on Extinguished. Thanks for listening to this episode. Check out all the other tales in this limited series featuring Extinguished, Deep Dark Secrets, Murder and Mimosas, True Crime Connections, and of course, Santa may be a criminal. Be nice.